Book One, Chapter Two of The Crossing by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Wars and Rumors of Wars. And so our life went on the same, but yet not the same, for I had the land of promise to dream of, and as I went about my task, I conjured up in my mind pictures of its beauty. You will forgive a backwoods boy self-centered for lack of wider interest and with a little imagination. Bear hunting with my father, and an occasional trip on the white mare twelve miles to the crossroads for salt and other necessities were the only diversions to break the routine of my days. But at the crossroads, too, they were talking of Kentucky, for so the land was called, the dark and bloody ground the next year came a war on the frontier waged by lord dunmore governor of virginia of this likewise i heard at the crossroads though few from our part seemed to have gone to it and i heard there for rumors spread over mountains that men blazing in the new land were in danger and that my hero boone was gone out to save them but in the autumn came tidings of a great battle far to the north and of the indians suing for peace the next year came more tidings of a sort i did not understand i remember once bringing back from the crossroads a crumpled newspaper which my father read again and again and then folded up and put in his pocket he said nothing to me of these things but the next time i went to the crossroads the woman asked me is your pa for the congress what's that said i i reckon he ain't said the woman tartly i recalled her dimly a slattern creature in a loose gown and bare feet wife of the storekeeper and wagoner with a swarm of urchins about her they were all very natural to me thus and i remember a battle with one of these urchins in the briars an affair which did not add to the love of their family for ours there was no money in that country and the store took our pelts in exchange for what we needed from civilization once a month would i load these pelts on the white mare and make the journey by the path down the creek at times i met other settlers there some of them not long from ireland with the brogue still in their mouths and again i saw the wagoner with his great canvas-covered wagon standing at the door ready to start for the town sixty miles away twas he brought the news of this latest war one day i was surprised to see the wagoner riding up the path to our cabin crying out for my father for he was a violent man and a violent scene followed they remained for a long time within the house and when they came out the wagoner's face was red with rage my father too was angry but no more talkative than usual you say you'll not help the congress shouted the wagoner i'll not said my father ye live to rue this day alec trimble cried the man ye may think you're too fine for the likes of us but there's them in the settlement that knows about ye with that he flung himself on his horse and rode away but the next time i went to the crossroads the woman drove me away with curses and called me an aristocrat wearily i tramped back the dozen miles up the creek beside the mare carrying my pelts with me stumbling on the stones and scratched by the dry briars for it was autumn the woods all red and yellow against the green of the pines 
I sat down beside the old beaver dam to gather courage to tell my father. But he only smiled bitterly when he heard it, nor would he tell me what the word aristocrat meant. That winter we spent without bacon, and our salt gave out at Christmas. It was at this season, if I remember rightly, that we had another visitor. He arrived about nightfall one gray day, his horse jaded and cut, and he was dressed all in wool with a great coat wrapped about him and high boots. This made me stare at him. When my father drew back the bolt of the door, he too stared and fell back a step. Come in, said he. Ye ken me, Alec, said the man. He was a tall, spare man like my father, a Scotchman, but his hair was in a queue. Come in, Duncan, said my father quietly. Davy, run out for wood. Loath as I was to go, I obeyed. As I came back, dragging a log behind me, I heard them in argument, and in their talk there was much about the Congress and a woman named Flora MacDonald and a British fleet sailing southward. We'll have two thousand Highlanders and more to meet the fleet, and ye'll sit at home in this hovel ye've made, ye wrestle. And he glanced about disdainfully. And no help the king. He brought his fist down on the pine boards. You did no help the king greatly at Cloudon, Duncan, said my father dryly. Our visitor did not answer at once. The Yankee rebels are no help to House of Stuart said he presently and hanover's come to stay are ye too a rebel alec ritchie i remember wondering why he said ritchie i'll no take a hand in this fight answered my father and that was the end of it the man left with scant ceremony i guiding him down the creek to the main trail he did not open his mouth until i parted with him poor davy said he and rode away in the night, for the moon shone through the clouds. I remember these things, I suppose, because I had nothing else to think about, and the names stuck in my memory, intensified by later events, until I began to write a diary. And now I come to my travels. As the spring drew on, I had had a feeling that we could not live thus forever, with no market for our pelts, and one day my father said to me abruptly, Davy, we'll be traveling. Where? I asked. You'll ken soon enough, said he. We'll go at crack o' day. We went away in the wild dawn, leaving the cabin desolate. We loaded the white mare with the pelts, and my father wore a woolen suit like that of our Scotch visitor, which I had never seen before. He had clubbed his hair, but strangest of all he carried in a small parcel the silk gown that had been my mother's we had scant other baggage we crossed the yatkin at a ford and climbing the hills to the south of it we went down over stony traces down and down through rain and sun stopping at rude cabins or taverns until we came into the valley of another river this i know now was the catawba my memories of that ride are as misty as the spring weather in the mountains. But presently the country began to open up into broad fields, some of these abandoned to pines. And at last, splashing through the stiff red clay that was up to the mare's fetlocks, we came to a place called Charlottetown. What a day that was for me! 
and how I gaped at the houses there, finer than any I'd ever dreamed of. That was my first sight of a town, and how I listened open-mouthed to the gentleman at the tavern. One, I recall, had a fighting head with a lock awry, and a negro servant to wait on him, and was the principal spokesman. He, too, was talking of war. The Cherokees had risen on the western border. He was telling of the massacre of a settlement, in no mild language. Sirs, he cried, the British have stirred the redskins to this. Will you sit here while women and children are scalped, and those devils, he called them worse names, Stuart and Cameron go unpunished? My father got up from the corner where he sat and stood beside the man. I ken, Alec Cameron, said he. The man looked at him with amazement. I, said he, I shouldn't think you'd own it. Damn him, he cried. If we catch him, we'll skin him alive. I ken, Cameron, my father repeated, and I'll gang with you to skin him alive. The man seized his hand and wrung it. But first I must be in Charlestown, said my father. The next morning we sold our pelts, and though the mare was tired, we pushed southward, I behind the saddle. I had much to think about, wondering what was to become of me while my father went to skin Cameron. I had not the least doubt that he would do it. The world is a storybook to a lad of nine, and the thought of Charlestown filled me with a delight unspeakable. Perchance he would leave me in Charlestown. At nightfall we came into a settlement called the Waxhalls, and there being no tavern there, and the mare being very jaded and the roads heavy, we cast about for a place to sleep. The sunlight slanting over the pine forest glistened on the pools in the wet fields, and it so chanced that splashing across these, swinging a milk pail over his head, shouting at the top of his voice, was a red-headed lad of my own age. My father hailed him, and he came running towards us, still shouting, and vaulted the rails. He stood before me, eyeing me with a most mischievous look in his blue eyes, and dabbling in the red mud with his toes. I remember I thought him a queer-looking boy. He was lanky, and he had a very long face under his tousled hair. My father asked him where he could spend the night. Well, said the boy, I reckon Uncle Crawford might take you in, and again he mightn't. He ran ahead, still swinging the pail, and we, following, came at length to a comfortable-looking farmhouse. As we stopped at the doorway, a stout, motherly woman filled it. She held her knitting in her hand. "'You, Andy,' she cried, "'have you fetched the milk?' Andy tried to look repentant. "'I declare I'll tan you,' said the lady. "'Get out this instant. What rascality have you been in?' "'I fetched home visitors, Ma,' said Andy. "'Visitors?' cried the lady. "'What'll your Uncle Crawford say?' and she looked at us smiling but with no great hostility pardon me madam said my father if we seem to intrude but my mare is tired and we have nowhere to stay uncle crawford did take us in he was a man of substance in that country a north of ireland man by birth if i remember right i went to bed with the red-headed boy whose name was andy jackson 
I remember that his mother came into our little room under the eaves and made Andy say his prayers and me after him. But when she was gone out, Andy stumped his toe getting into bed in the dark and swore with a brilliancy and vehemence that astonished me. It was some hours before we went to sleep, he plying me with questions about my life, which seemed to interest him greatly, and I returning in kind. My pa's dead, said Andy. He came from a part of Ireland where they're all weavers. We're kind of poor relations here. Aunt Crawford's sick, and Ma keeps house. But Uncle Crawford's good and lets me go to Charlottetown with him sometimes. I recall that he also boasted some about his big brothers who were away just then. And he was up betimes in the morning to see us start. But we didn't start, because Mr. Crawford insisted that the white mare should have a half-day's rest. Andy, being hustled off unwillingly to the old field school, made me go with him. He was a very headstrong boy. I was very anxious to see a school. This one was only a log house in a poor, piney place, with a rabble of boys and girls romping at the door. But when they saw us, they stopped. Andy jumped into the air, letting out a war-hoop, and flung himself into the midst, scattering them right and left, and knocking one boy over and over. "'I'm Billy Buck,' he cried. "'I'm a whole regiment of rangers. Let the Cherokees mind me.' "'Way for Sandy Andy,' cried the boys. "'Where'd you get the new boy, Sandy?' "'His name's Davy,' said Andy. "'And his pa's going to fight the Cherokees. He can lick tarnation out of any of you.' meanwhile i held back never having been thrown with so many of my own kind he shot panthers and bears said andy and skinned em can you lick him smally i reckon not now i had not come to the school for fighting so i held back fortunately for me smally held back also but he tried skilful tactics he can throw you sandy andy faced me in an instant can you said he there was nothing to do but try and in a few seconds we were rolling on the ground to the huge delight of smalley and the others andy shouting all the while and swearing we rolled and rolled and rolled in the mud until we both lost our breath and even andy stopped swearing or wanted it after a while the boys were silent and the thing became grim earnest at length by some accident rather than my own strength both his shoulders touched the ground i released him but he was on his feet in an instant and at me again like a wildcat and he won't stay throwed shouted a boy and before i knew it he had my shoulders down in a puddle then i went for him and the affairs were growing more serious than a wrestle when smalley fancying himself safe and no doubt having a grudge shouted out tell him he slobbers davy Andy did slobber, but that was the end of me and the beginning of Smalley. Andy left me instantly, not without an intimidation that he would come back, and proceeded to cover Smalley with red clay and blood. However, in the midst of this turmoil, the schoolmaster arrived, hailed both into the schoolhouse, held court, and flogged Andrew with considerable gusto he pronounced these words afterwards with great solemnity andrew jackson if i catch you fightin once more i'll be avin to givin you have to leave the school i parted from andy at noon with real regret 
he was the first boy with whom i had ever had any intimacy and i admired him chiefly i fear for his fluent use of profanity and his fighting qualities he was a merry lad with a wondrous quick temper but a good heart and he seemed sorry to say good-bye he filled my pockets with june apples unripe by the way and told me to remember him when i got till charlestown i remembered him much longer than that and usually with a shock of surprise End of chapter 2